Amen. If you have your copy of Scripture this morning, we're going to be in Acts chapter 12 this morning. Acts chapter 12. And uh, we'll be looking at the whole chapter of Acts chapter 12 this morning. be reading from the English Standard Version this morning, Acts chapter 12. About that time, King Herod, or Herod the king, laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread, and when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. And so Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and centuries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. And he struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. And he did not know that what was being done by the angel was real. But he thought he was seeing a vision. And when they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent this angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, the servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. And they said to her, You are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, It is his angel. But Peter continued knocking and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. And then he departed and went to another place. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the centuries and ordered them that they should be put to death. And he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent some time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And they came to him with one accord and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. And on an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes and took his seat upon the throne and he delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of the man. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. 
But the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Now, I typically don't try to do cutesy little titles for my sermons, but we have titled this sermon, If You Try to Stop the Gospel, You May Be Eaten by Worms. Because this is what we see in this passage of Scripture in Acts chapter 12. We live in a day and age where it seems like evil is winning the day. Wicked men get away with murder and they become more popular. A wicked society gets away with murdering millions of babies and nothing is ever done. Those who stand up for righteousness suffer and sometimes they suffer greatly. It is very easy to look around and ask, where is God in all of this? How can God allow this to happen? How can anything good possibly come from this? James and John were brothers. They had worked their father's fishing business together. They had spent three years in close contact with Jesus Christ. They had hopes of how the Lord would use them to spread the gospel to the ends of the earth, just like Jesus had commanded them to do. But now James is dead. He's murdered at the hands of Herod. And John perhaps is left wondering why. We have at the beginning of this chapter, James dead, Peter in prison, and Herod is more popular than ever. By the end of the chapter, we have Peter free, Herod eaten by worms and dead, and the word of God growing and multiplying. What we see Luke saying or, or getting for us out of all this is that the gospel cannot be stopped. Man has tried many times to stop the gospel of Jesus Christ, but the gospel keeps advancing. Many times man has failed. If you try to stop the gospel, you may succeed for a time, but you will eventually lose and you will lose big to the point you just may be eaten by worms. However, when you stand for the gospel, you may lose in the eyes of the world, but you will win. And you will win big. There are several things I want us to notice as we go through this passage of Scripture. And every one of those things really deals with the sovereignty of God and a different aspect of it. The first thing I'd like us to notice as we look at this passage of Scripture is this. God's sovereignty does not always prevent trouble. God's sovereignty does not always prevent trouble. I want you to travel back with me one chapter. If you remember in chapter 11, we talked about the church at Antioch and how there the disciples were first called Christian. And we talked about how this meant they belonged to Christ and how they on one hand had ability and on the other hand they had need and they brought the two together. And that was just in the last chapter we saw great things happening with the church. Now contrast that with the hatred that we see from Herod and the Jews in Jerusalem towards the church there. Luke lets us know that this mistreatment of the church happened during the Passover and that the Jews were pleased with what Herod was doing. They liked it. Now, church, let me stop for just a second and say that when someone's religion, when someone's religion allows them to be pleased 
with the death of a righteous person, there's a problem. And let me just be clear that that religion is useless. If religion calls someone to be pleased with the death of a righteous person, then it's a useless religion. It's that simple. Scripture says the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, 1 Peter 3.12. Though God may not prevent the trouble, he sees it. Now I think it's important for us to understand just a little bit about Herod. So who is Herod? Well, this is Herod Agrippa. Herod Agrippa I. He was born in 10 BC and he is the grandson of Herod the Great. Herod the Great, if you remember, had all the infants in Bethlehem killed when Jesus was born. Grandpa Herod assassinated his own son, Agrippa's father, when Agrippa was only three. And so he went to Rome with his mother and was on close terms with the imperial family. He had to escape Rome eventually because he was fleeing creditors and he even spent some time in prison. However, the emperor at the time released him and assigned him king of the northernmost province of Palestine. And later he was given all of the territory, the territory that his grandfather had ruled until his death in AD 44. And the apostle Paul would later stand trial before this Herod's son, Herod Agrippa II. And as we can see, Herod Agrippa was a classic politician. When in Rome, he did as the Romans did. And when in Palestine, he knew how to appeal to the Jews. He could observe the Jewish feasts and the sacrifices. He kept Caligula from erecting a statue of himself as God in the Jewish temple. He helped the Alexandrian Jews receive more humane treatment. He moved the government seat from Caesarea to Jerusalem. And he even had begun to reconstruct the city's northern wall. He was a popular guy among the Jews. He knew that in order to keep Rome happy, you had to keep the Jews happy. And he saw these Jewish Christians as disruptive to what he was trying to accomplish. They might disturb the peace. And he had worked hard to keep peace. And so he arrests them. And he has James beheaded. And he noticed that this makes the Jews happy. And so Peter would now be next in line. I mean, if they're happy about James, let's just get Peter in here. Don't things seem out of control in this passage? When you start off reading this passage, doesn't it seem out of control? James dead, Peter's in prison. But God is in control even when it seems like he is not in control. God is in control even when it seems like he is not in control. He can look at Herod and see that he is a very wicked man, but I'm here to tell you that just because man is wicked is not an indicator that God is not sovereign. In fact, it is because of the sovereignty of God 
that Herod's reach could only go so far. We would be sadly mistaken if when we see tragedy like this or any other tragedy that we think somehow God could not have prevented it. The truth is God could have stopped Herod if he chose to do so. He could have easily stopped him. But he didn't choose to do so. Listen to God's word. It makes it clear who is in control. He says, Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The things of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast them away. Their cords, cast their cords away from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. God is in control. There is not one wicked act on the face of this earth that takes place apart from the sovereign will of an almighty God. Are we to think that God somehow spun out of control when evil prevails around us? And when wickedness runs rampant, are we to think that God is not in control? Are we to think that when John the Baptist was beheaded, that God somehow was not in control? Are we to think that when Hitler slaughtered six million Jews, that somehow God was not in control? Are we to think that when tyrannical rulers set themselves up and kill millions of innocent people, that God has somehow checked out and he is no longer here? Or how about when America, when we've aborted nearly 52 million babies since 1970, are we to think that God is not in control or how about when a loved one dies is God no longer in control or how about when an earthquake happens is God no longer in control or a tornado or how about when you're stuck with an illness do you think that God somehow is not in control God was in control in the beginning and guess what he remains in control forever even in the midst of the end times, when the Antichrist sets himself up as God, God is in control. He comes in and removes him when his time is up. But the scripture says that before he removes him, many will suffer and die. Church, just because evil resides around us does not mean that God is somehow absent. Let me tell you something. When you hear someone preaching that you get your best life now and that God will always deliver you from your sickness or your tragedy or death, you need to run very far away because they are a false teacher. Those that teach that kind of philosophy usurp the authority of God and they set themselves up in his place and they say all we have to do is claim our healing and if you're not healed then you must have lacked faith I have yet to figure out why so many follow these false teachers who prostitute the gospel of Jesus Christ for a fraud let me speak another very important truth to you as well and that truth is so hard for us to grasp Tragedy in our life does not mean that God loves us any less. 
Did God love James? Yes. Was James beheaded? Yes. Why did God allow Peter to live and James to die? Surely he must have loved Peter more. Nonsense. The truth is God does not owe us an explanation. Who knows the lessons that were learned from the death of James. But I can tell you this. If the family of James came to the conclusion that somehow God just loves them less. They would have been sadly mistaken. Sometimes the only answer is the sovereign will of God. It is the throne in heaven that controls. Not the throne on earth that controls. One thing is this. One thing for certain is that. This teaches us the mystery of God's providence that we will never fully understand it or comprehend it. Finally, notice how briefly Luke makes mention of the death of James. It passed over with such a brief sentence. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. That's all we get. No description, just he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. Stephen had a whole chapter dedicated to his death, and he was not even an apostle. James was one of the inner circle. He just gets a few words. Christians, sometimes death is so hard because we have such a temporal perspective. Yet James was welcomed into heaven by Jesus. And I'm certain he heard the words, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the eternal joy of your master. I know this is hard for us to sometimes grasp and get. To have a heavenly focus on death. But I believe that when we step into eternity, we will know all this suffering and all the things that we went through is nothing compared to the eternal joy of being with Christ forever. Amen. So church, just know this. God's sovereignty does not always prevent trouble. We will sometimes go through very dark and harsh times but God is still in control secondly secondly God's sovereignty can deliver his servants if it is his will God's sovereignty can deliver his servants if it is his will there is not a prison in this world that can hold one of God's children if he chooses to set them free God could have spared James if it was his will to do so. In these verses, we notice that God gets Peter out of Herod's prison while he's being guarded. Remember a few years prior, Peter and John, remember what happened? They, they escaped prison and they went right back into, into the uh, temple and they were preaching the gospel and Herod wanted to make sure that there would be no funny business this time and so he assigns soldiers he assigns these guards uh, to Peter around the clock there's no way Peter's getting out of this two soldiers chained to Peter and two more stood guard at the door to his cell and then there were two more guarded at an iron gate that led into the city I don't think Peter is going anywhere however he escapes and not by a squadron of angels. Just one. Just one angel. Just one comes down and takes care of business. We read that the angel came at night. It would have been dark and yet suddenly the cell lit up. Yet oddly enough the guards didn't wake up. Even when the chains fell off of Peter's wrists. What is even stranger is that we read this. 
Peter is sound asleep. I mean, I don't know about you, but if I'm about to lose my head, I'm probably not going to be sound asleep. Peter, he's sound asleep. He's going to be executed, and yet there he is sleeping soundly. And the angel, it says, had to strike him to wake him up. Peter knew that his safety was in the Lord and that the Lord's will would be done no matter what. And as we look at this, notice that Peter is guided by an angel. Peter's guided by an angel. First, the angel showed up and Peter kept sleeping and then the angel struck him to wake him up and told him, get up quickly. And from there, the chains fall off of Peter and he is then told to get dressed and and to get his sandals on. Have you ever been in a deep sleep and then suddenly something wakes you up? Right? You're a little groggy. You have to try to get your bearings. So I can imagine the scene as Peter is is getting dressed and gathering his things and and trying to get his sandals on. And and uh, he's to put his cloak on and follow the angel. And as they walk out of the prison, Peter thought he was just having some crazy dream. Past the first guard and the second guard, and they're standing at the iron gate that leads in, uh, into the city. And just like walking out of your local big box store, the door swings open and Peter walks out. Peter still doesn't know what really happened until the angel left him standing in the street and listened to anyone. This escape would have seemed impossible. Impossible. Chained to two guards asleep, having to go through two more guards and through an iron gate. But with God, that's not even a challenge. God's sovereignty can and sometimes does deliver his people. But also notice notice this. God is not glorified by self-reliance, but by total dependence on Him. God is not glorified by self-reliance, but by total dependence on Him. Invariably, what happens when faced with a difficult situation, our course of action seems to be figure out how we will get out of that situation. Suppose somehow Peter thought up some great escape from prison. I'm sure some people would have been wowed and even baffled at how he pulled it off. However, Peter had nothing to do with his escape. In reality, because it, was, it wasn't even on his mind. He's not even thinking about it. He's sleeping. I mean, Peter, what's he going to say in this occasion? What's he got to say? Boy, it really stunk that that angel didn't just transport me out of the prison. I had to walk out on my own two legs. It was real rough. He had nothing to boast about. The only thing Peter could say is the Lord led me out. That's all he could say. In church, it's the same way with our salvation. Our salvation is not from self-reliance. You're not saved because you gave the right answer or because you are so righteous. We could not escape the wrath of God, even if we wanted to. We are saved because God broke into our darkness and He shined His glory. He woke us up and He took the chains off and we joyfully follow Him because He 
alone rescued us. Our salvation is completely and totally from him. And so he gets all of the glory. And we can only say in response, God, I praise you. It's all from you. But also notice in verse 5 that we see the church praying. It says, so Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer. Can I tell you something? Even when the Lord's delivering his people, sometimes God waits so that we are motivated to prayer. Do you think the church prayed for James? I'm sure they did. But if we pay attention to verse 5, we notice the scripture focuses in on the church and tells us that they were in earnest prayer for Peter. The night before Peter is going to be executed, the church gathers for an all-night prayer vigil, and they're, they're in serious prayer. That's what it says, they're in earnest prayer. And in fact, the root meaning for the word is to stretch out, often used as an athletic term, to strain every single muscle. And this isn't, this isn't the prayer uh, in the church that, that's just like, oh, well, uh, Lord, just bless Peter while he's in prison. Just bless him. That's not those kind of prayers. Listen, they're crying out to God that he would do something. God, would you do something? Why? Because they're helpless to do anything. Have you ever been in a moment of crisis and it causes you to pray like you've never prayed before. Sometimes God waits so that we're motivated to pray like that. And let me say that we should always pray that way. We're always on the edge of death every single day and disaster every single day. Jesus said that Satan is like a roaring lion seeking who he can devour. He's always on the hunt Every single day. Yesterday is no different than today. And tomorrow will be no different unless Jesus returns. He is seeking who he will devour. And guess what? He's looking for you. And he's waiting. He's waiting for your weakness so he can gobble you right up. We should always be people of prayer. However, here's the thing. Sometimes God waits to answer. And when he does, we recognize our total dependence on him. And as we look at this, we notice that God moves through prayer to teach us dependence. Let me ask you this, church. Do you think this church was expecting God to deliver Peter? Do you think they were? I don't think so. Doesn't seem like it. They're surprised that he's delivered. What happened? Peter comes to the door. Rhoda goes to the door. She recognizes Peter's voice. She's so excited she doesn't even let him in. She can't believe it. And then she goes and tells the church, hey, Peter's at the door. 
How do they respond? Did they say, we knew it. We, this is exactly what we've been praying for. We knew God would come through. That's not how they respond. They're like, you are out of your mind. There is no way that Peter is at the door. It couldn't be Peter. And she keeps insisting. And they keep insisting, it's not Peter. It's got to be his angel. Peter keeps knocking. The church didn't have faith that God was going to deliver Peter. But God did it anyway. Was God dependent on their faithless prayers to do so? No. If God is going to do whatever he wants, then why should we pray? Have you ever asked yourself that question? If God's going to do whatever he wants, if he's sovereign and he's always in control, have you ever said, then why do I pray? Prayer is a great mystery. God knows our needs, but yet he wants us to pray. Why? Why do we pray? Some think that somehow we manipulate God in prayer, but God will not be manipulated by man. So why do we pray? We do not pray because we understand how prayer works. We pray for many reasons because we're commanded to do so for one. And because Jesus, as our example, prayed and because God promises to hear and answer our prayer. Prayer is not optional. It's not, well, I may pray and I may not. Prayer is required. We pray for God's glory and secondly, for our benefit. And in prayer, we do so because it's commanded for us to do. And we we know that when we pray, it glorifies our Father in heaven and that somehow that benefits us. And as we see here, even when our faith, even when your faith in the midst of your prayer falls short, God still works. I mean, isn't that amazing, church? That even when I lack faith, God still works. Even when my faith is weak and I think, oh, there's no way that God can do this. He can do more than I can think. And his answer, church, his answer, this is such a great truth. His answer is not dependent on you. It's not. It's not even dependent upon the measure of faith I have or my merit. His answer is dependent solely on his sovereign grace and mercy. And you and I are totally dependent on him. So we've seen that God's sovereignty doesn't always prevent trouble. We've seen that God's sovereignty can deliver his servants if it's his will. And thirdly, let's see that God's sovereignty can bring death even to the most powerful of human leaders. I know sometimes we don't like to think of God on these terms, that he would bring death to someone, but we can't just ignore what the scripture right here teaches us. God is sovereign over all things, and we see it clearly displayed. Peter has escaped. 
Herod starts an intense manhunt. He's going to find Peter, but he can't find him. Peter told those that gathered at Mary's house to report his escape to James, the half-brother of Jesus. By the way, not the same James that's dead. But, uh, and, and to the brothers who most likely were in hiding from Herod. And now, if we remember way back in chapter 5... Peter was directed to go stand in the temple and preach, but this time uh, there's no instructions like that, and so he goes into hiding. Meanwhile, Herod is on a rampage, and he assumed that these guards, they must have had something to do with Peter's escape, and so he has them all killed, and after all of that, he has to have a vacation. And so he says, I'm going to go down to Caesarea, and I'm going to take me a little break. You know, put my toes in the sand down there. Now, for some reason, we don't know why, Herod is all upset with the people from Tyre and Sidon. And so what does he do? He cuts off their food supply. And so the people of Tyre and Sidon go to Blastus, who is Herod's trusted man, and they talk with him. And Blastus says, I'll give you a hearing. And on the appointed day, Herod puts on his royal robes and he begins to deliver his speech. Luke writes that the people were shouting the voice of God and not of a man. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God glory. And he was eaten by worms and he breathed his last. Now that sounds like a fabulous way to go out, doesn't it? Struck down, eaten by worms. What is interesting about this is Josephus, who was a Jewish historian at the time, gives a parallel account to what Luke wrote. Josephus says that Herod put on a garment that apparently was made entirely of silver. And when the morning sun hit the garment, it was so glorious that the people were awestruck and the people cried out that Herod was a god. And when he refused to rebuke them, he immediately got a violent pain in his stomach. And after five days, he died at the age of 54. Now, interestingly enough, Dr. A. Rendell Short, who was a professor of surgery at Bristol University and wrote a book entitled The Bible and Modern Medicine, stated that a great many people in Asia harbor intestinal worms, which can form a tight ball and cause acute intestinal obstruction. This may have been the cause of Herod's death. We don't know. What we know is that he had a stomach pain. And he died. He was eaten by worms. Herod was foolish to not give God the glory. And God used worms to bring down the most powerful human leader of the time. Just use some worms. God's sovereignty brought the death by worms to the man that tried to stop the gospel. Listen, church. Self-seeking glory declares war against God. Self-seeking glory declares war against God. Herod sought to glorify himself in his own name. It is as if, it, as if uh, the thought did not even cross his mind to tell the people, don't declare that I am a God. I am no God. God has not, does not, and will never share his glory with another. If we speak to bring exaltation to ourselves, surely the Lord at some point will humble us. We have to fight the temptation of pride and self-exaltation. God alone deserves the praise. Secondly, if we stand in opposition to God, we will lose. Herod got some glory, right? He got glory from the people. It's for a short time. However, his misery was forever. 
And when we seek our own glory, church, it is short-lived and it will not last. And it will be over quickly. And it reaps eternal consequences. Everyone who does not receive Christ as Savior and surrender their lives ultimately to His glory is thrown into the lake of fire to be tormented day and night forever. When we stand in opposition to God, we will lose every single time. And so we have seen that God's sovereignty does not always prevent trouble. We have seen that God's sovereignty can deliver His servants if it is His will. And that God's sovereignty can bring death to even the most powerful of human leaders. And lastly this morning, I want to share with you this, that God's sovereignty Sovereignty advances his gospel and it can't be stopped. Can't be stopped. Notice how Luke brings this section to a close for us. He says, but the word of God increased and multiplied. He mentions that Barnabas, Saul, and John Mark went back to Antioch. And the stage is now set for the gospel to go out among the Gentiles. And in fact, the rest of Acts will be dedicated to this. Herod was opposed to the gospel, advancing the Jews and, and what they wanted to do. And the Jews were opposed to the gospel, advancing, and they came under God's judgment. Granted, the apostles suffered. The early church suffered. Many of the apostles died a terrible death. A violent death. And since the spread of the gospel, they, uh, people continue to die. But the word of God still grows. It continues to advance. You know why? Because it can't be stopped. Many have tried to stop it. None have succeeded. They've tried to keep the gospel from advancing. But they can't Stop it. They can't. We can go read Fox's Book of Martyrs. And the violent death that many people went through. In order to advance the gospel. And guess what? It's still advancing today. Listen, this chapter opens. James dead. Peter in prison. And Herod triumphing. And it closes. Herod's dead. Peter's free. And the word of God is triumphing. That's the power of God. To overthrow hostile human plans. And to establish his own plan in their place. Tyrants may be permitted for a time to boast and rave about how great they are. They may even for a time oppress the church, hindering the spread of the gospel. But they will not last. And in the end, their empire will be broken and their pride belittled. You know why? Because God is sovereign. So let me bring this home, church. If the gospel can't be stopped, what do you think we should be doing? If the gospel can't be stopped, what should we be doing? 
Should we not be committed to spreading the gospel? Because it can't be stopped. Whether God in his sovereignty delivers you from great trial or whether you die for your faith, we must be committed to the spreading of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It can't be stopped. Listen, church, are you committed to the unstoppable spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Would you say this morning, I'm committed to spreading the gospel? John Gibson Patton was born in Scotland in 1824. As a young Christian, he labored as a city missionary in the slums of Glasgow, but he felt God's call to take the gospel to the fierce cannibals of the New Hebrides Island and South Pacific. John Williams and James Harris made the first attempt to take the gospel there in 1839. They were clubbed to death and eaten within a few minutes of them landing. Patton and his new wife landed there on November 5th, 1858. On February 12th, 1859, she gave birth to a son, but on March 3rd, she died from complications after childbirth. On March 20th, the baby died. Patton struggled with his grief and loneliness. Just before his wife died, she expressed her wish that her mother could be there with her. And then she added this, you must not think that I regret coming here and leaving my mother. If, it had this, if I had the same thing to do over again, I would do it with far more pleasure. Yes, with all my heart. Oh no, I do not regret leaving the home and my friends, though at the time I felt it keenly. And her dying words were not lost. Only gone before to be forever with the Lord. You know what Patton did? Devoted himself to the spreading of the gospel amongst those cannibals until he was in his 70s. He learned the language. He built orphanages. He trained people. He ministered to the sick and dying. He gave medicine and taught them to use tools and saw many, many, many people come to Christ. And what he say at the end of his life? Oh, that I had my life to begin again. I would consecrate it anew to Jesus Christ and seeking the conversion of remaining cannibals on the new Hebrides. Church, whatever the cost. Whatever the cost. May we be committed to the cause of the unstoppable gospel of Jesus Christ. Whatever the cost, church, understand that God in his sovereignty doesn't always prevent trouble. Understand that he can deliver his servant if it's his will. And understand that he can bring death to even the most powerful of human leaders. And understand that we must advance his unstoppable gospel. And so my only thought to you is it's time to get busy. It's time to get busy. It's not good enough just to be here. It's time to be busy spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ, and to say whatever the cost, God is sovereign and he's in control. And this I know, the gospel will not be stopped.
not going to be stopped. So, I mean, if I'm going to commit to something, <laughs> let's commit to something that can't be stopped, right? It can't be stopped. Does that mean you're not going to have failures on this earth? Nope, God is sovereign. You may, but his gospel can't be stopped. Are you committed to it? Here in a moment, we're going to pray. And maybe this morning you've you felt the Lord speak to you somehow. Maybe, maybe you just need to come up here and pray. Maybe you'd like someone to pray with you. I'd be glad to do that. Maybe as you examine your life, you've not been committed to the unstoppable spread of the gospel. You've not understood that God is sovereign and he's in control of all things, but his gospel won't be stopped. Maybe this morning you just need to commit yourself to that. Say, Lord, I'm committed to the spread of the gospel. And maybe this morning for the first time you understood who Jesus was and what faith is about. And you'd like to talk about that. I'd be glad to talk with you, pray with you. You don't have to respond. You can respond in your pew if you want to, but I'll just let you know I'll be down front as we sing this song. And if you want to respond, let's go ahead and close with prayer.